0: Okay, so as I said earlier, this is the last of our six-week series. And I don't know about for any of you, but for me, it's just whizzed by. And it's been a bit of a whirlwind tour of these uh, foundations of insight, which I've been grounding in the Satipatthana Sutta, the four establishments of mindfulness. And even though we've taken six weeks... We've barely even scratched the surface of what's in that sutta. But I hope that at least it's given, those of you who are new to this material, a sense of perhaps the depth and the breadth and the variety of different meditation techniques that are offered there so that you might continue exploring them in your own practice at home. And at the end, I'll give you a few suggestions of how we might do that. So tonight, we're at the official end of our tour, and even though we don't have a lot of time this evening, I want to continue where we left off last week by going into a bit more depth with practicing mindfulness of the mind. So hopefully, as you remember, the third establishment of mindfulness is, as we were just exploring, simply knowing thoughts, emotions, moods, mind states, as different kinds of mental activity without getting involved in them, without identifying with them, without taking them personally. And this is the first stage of working with the mind. But it's not the whole approach. Because as we come now to the fourth establishment of mindfulness, we're asked to look more carefully at what's going in on the mind, And use wisdom to discern what types of mental activity are harmful and what types are beneficial so that we can make the effort to release and reduce the harmful ones and strengthen and support the beneficial ones. And I wanted to highlight that because, as somebody mentioned earlier, as mindfulness has become more and more mainstream, Sometimes it's this aspect in the fourth establishment of mindfulness that tends to get left out or downplayed. And so sometimes mindfulness is presented a little simplistically as being just passively be with your experience. And I've actually been in courses where the instructors said, just be with it, just be with it, just be with it. Don't try to change it, just be with it. Now it's true that that's the first step, but the point of being with experience and observing it is so that we can get even more clear about whether that experience is leading to more ease, to more happiness, to more peace and freedom or not. And if it isn't, then we need to do something about it. So in order to know what's harmful and what isn't, we need to apply wisdom to our assessment of the experiences. And this is where the fourth establishment of mindfulness comes in. It's usually translated as mindfulness of Dhammas. And that word Dhamma has a lot of different meanings, including the Buddha's teachings. So in this category, are you ready? I hope this won't make your heads spin too much we have all the lists of the Buddha's teachings, the five hindrances, the five clinging aggregates, the six internal and external sense bases, sorry, spheres, the seven factors of awakening, and the four noble truths. So it's pretty much a compendium of all of the Buddha's teachings. So this could be a very long night. <laughs> So don't worry, I'm not even going to try to go into all of those different numbered lists. We'll be touching into some of them in talks later in the year. Tonight I'm going to try and give you more of an overview and just take a couple of these lists to focus in on a little bit more. The first thing I want to say is in relation to numbered lists themselves you know i remember thinking these guys really need to update their presentation <laughs> and move beyond all of these numbered lists but the reason they do it was because back in the buddha's day it was primarily an oral culture they didn't really have reading and writing so the teachings were transmitted through reciting memorizing hearing reciting memorizing and so numbered lists are a, a relatively easy way of keeping things in mind For us today, at least for me, when I hear a list, there's a tendency to just disconnect. The four of this, the five of that, the six of the other. It just sounds like an inventory of abstract terms and there's not much meat in it, so to speak. So recently I've started thinking of these numbered lists as being a bit like camping food. You know those packets of freeze-dried stuff that you can buy to take canoeing or hiking or whatever they're totally dehydrated so that they're light and they're portable and we can take them anywhere but in their dehydrated form they're not really edible or nutritious so we need to mix them with water and heat them and then they get reconstituted into something that's more nourishing And it's a bit similar with these numbered lists. We need to take these key ingredients and chew on them in the context of our own lives. Try them out. And then they start to become something useful. They start to make sense. They become something that we can live by. So to get a sense of that, I'm going to focus just on two of these lists that are perhaps hopefully a bit more practical and accessible for our meditation practice, and probably the two that most of you may have heard something about already, the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. And I chose these two also because they're the most related to our mental activity as we've been exploring. And these are qualities that either get in the way of insight or support it. So first, the five hindrances, as the name suggests, are specific mind states that make it almost impossible to see clearly and to develop insight. And I think almost all of you have heard this list before. Some of you probably heard it many times. So just as a kind of a pop quiz now, let's see if we can name these five hindrances in order. Anyone remember the first one? Sensual desire, desire, thank you. So sensual desire is when the mind gets pulled towards what it likes, tries to enhance the pleasure, prolong it, hold on to it. And you might even check right now if there's any trace of sensual desire present. Could be quite subtle, just that. When are we going to have the tea break? I saw some biscuits that look quite good. Or it could be more intense. Maybe part of your mind's still fantasizing about that cute new person at work. Either way, with that kind of agitation in the mind, it's not going to be at ease. Pretty obviously hard to see clearly. Likewise, the second hindrance. Anybody remember that? Aversion, yeah. Ill will or aversion. This is the has the opposite effect on the mind. It, The mind pushes away from what it doesn't like and then we get caught in various forms of fear, of anger, of resistance. We try to get rid of it, try to get away from it and so again the mind becomes preoccupied and it can't see clearly. And again, all of these hindrances come in various shades from the most intense hatred or fear through to just subtle traces of not liking or not wanting. Though you might check now. Any little flickers or wisps of aversion? Perhaps some impatience for this talk to be over so you can talk to your friends. Or perhaps a lingering irritation with an unpleasant interaction that you had at work. So, if you do notice some kind of aversion, you might directly experience the unpleasantness of it and how it just creates that agitation in the mind and again stops it from seeing clearly. So, the third one, I'm getting in deeper now. Not quite. Sloth and torpor. Yes, sloth and torpor. Old-fashioned English words for sleepiness, dullness, heaviness, lethargy in the body and the mind. And I think that's probably the dominant one right now. (laughs) Just looking around the room. You know, we have the heat, we have the quiet, the stillness. How are your bodies and minds? Is there that tendency to sink into sloth and torpor? So this is probably pretty obvious. When we're in the grip of that, we're not going to find the clarity to develop insight. So sloth and torpor is an imbalance of energy in the direction of not enough energy. That's a clue about the next one, the fourth one, which is not quite... Worry. Yes, restlessness and worry... Yep. Yeah. And this is the energetic opposite. Instead of heaviness and dullness, the mind gets revved up into agitation and anxiety. It doesn't settle. It just flits around. It's distracted, preoccupied, not present. So maybe there's some of that for some of you right now. And again, just to say, probably all of us have all of these to some degree. It's completely normal. But you might notice You're not really focused on what I'm saying. The mind keeps jumping off, going somewhere else. Something else is more compelling. Or there is that rumination about what happened at work or in your family. Again, the mind spinning out in restlessness doesn't have a stability to see clearly. So the last one. Doubt, Doubt, specifically skeptical doubt. And it's usually given that um, preface to distinguish it from what we could think of as a more healthy form of doubt, which is investigation or inquiry, which is actually valued in the Buddha's teachings, as opposed to doubt, skeptical doubt, which sometimes leads to what we can think of as paralysis by analysis. Where the mind just kind of, yeah, but what about, and maybe then, or should I, I don't know. That kind of questioning just stops us in our tracks. Whereas healthy questioning opens up new areas of exploration and is what they call onward leading. So skeptical doubt sometimes manifests as being really stuck in our intellects, endlessly debating and comparing and contrasting and looking for the faults and flaws in everything that we hear or read. And again, that might be happening for some of you right now. But the fact that you're even here, (laughs) to me, suggests that if you were really caught in doubt, you wouldn't have bothered coming along tonight. So that's a good sign. I'm taking it as a good sign. So that's a very quick overview of what these five hindrances are. And the first step, as we were just doing, is to be able to recognize them for what they are. To recognize sensual desire as sensual desire rather than feeding it. To recognize aversion as aversion and so on. Sometimes just that simple recognition, just being able to name, "Oh, this is doubt, Or, oh, okay, that's a version. Just that recognition helps loosen its grip. Other times, they really get their claws into us. And one thing I've noticed in my own practice is that they don't just show up one by one. They tend to come as a mob. And one brings in all the others. And then we end up with that infamous but well-known multiple hindrance attack Well, they all just pile on. (laughs) So it can be really hard to get out of them. And just to say there are different antidotes that we can apply. I don't want to go into those tonight because it's just going to be overwhelming. But at some point, uh, we might have a chance to go into them in more depth. Because my strategy tonight is I'm deliberately not spending too much time on the hindrances because generally speaking, These are what we tend to hear the most of on retreats and in Dharma talks. And we don't hear nearly as much about their opposites, which are the skillful states of the awakening factors. So I want to use the time that we do have left tonight just to name what these are to try and even out that imbalance where we tend to focus more on the hindrances Because that can give people the impression that meditation is about spending years, maybe even decades, battling through all of these hindrances before we have any hope of experiencing anything that's remotely skillful or pleasant, let alone as lofty as an awakening factor. But what I hope to show tonight is that for all of us, these awakening factors are in play in our minds, probably a lot more than we might ordinarily realize. And so one of my teachers, Bhikkhu Analio, talks about recognizing them, even if they're just little buds, because little buds have the potential to grow into great trees. So before I briefly go through the list of what they are, just a couple of general points. The awakening factors have the opposite effect to the hindrances. They're highly skillful states that help us to see clearly. And when all seven of these factors are equally well developed and equally in balance, that provides the optimum conditions in the mind for really profound insights to arise. So this is really the point that we're cultivating, conditioning the mind to be able to access the kind of freedom that the Buddha's pointing to. The second point is there's a a reciprocal relationship between the hindrances and the awakening factors. When the hindrances are present, there's no room for the awakening factors. But the opposite is also true. When the awakening factors are established, the hindrances can't arise. So we're fortunate that there are only five hindrances and there are seven awakening factors. So the good guys outnumber the bad guys. The other point to make is that for most people we need the more specialized conditions of a retreat to be able to really deepen into these awakening factors more fully. But I think it's still worth knowing what they are because even in daily life, we can make lifestyle changes that can help develop and strengthen these qualities so that when we do go on retreat, the mind is in a better place to um, deepen into them. So I'd like to just briefly go through a similar process now as what we just did with the hindrances, but this time focusing on the mental, skillful mental qualities. So anyone remember what the first awakening factor is? Mm -hmm. Very good, yes. (laughs) Pretty much, here's a a cheat thing. If anyone asks you a question in in meditation circles, if you say mindfulness, you probably (laughs) get it right. So I don't... (laughs) Well, you could say remember, sati, yeah. But... I don't need to say much more about mindfulness because you all have heard so much about it. But in this moment right now, you can ask, is mindfulness present or not? And just by asking the question, you're actually mindful. You're present. You're paying attention, right? So that's a very good start. You've got the first one. Second one is... Very good, Buddhist geek. <laughs> the second one is investigation. And this is not perhaps quite as obvious, but it basically refers to taking an interest in what the mindful is. mindfulness is revealing. So being curious about the experience, exploring it. And in terms of the teaching, seeing its nature, its impermanence, its unsatisfactoriness, that it's impersonal. And also, in that investigation, to know whether the experience is leading us towards freedom or away from it. So right now, you might notice, is there that basic quality of interest, of exploration? And in asking the question again, You're doing it. So by asking, is there investigation now or not, you're investigating. So again, that's another easy win. Just a little caution. Again, you know, because of dominant society being so intellect-based, investigation here doesn't mean intellectually thinking about the experience, proliferating around it. It's much more an embodied exploration, a more... um, It's not so much cogitating and ruminating, it's really feeling into with the body and the heart more than the intellect. And if investigation is on track, it naturally leads into the third one, third awakening factor, which is... Energy, energy. yes. You've obviously got these memorized. So in the context of the awakening factors, what makes energy an awakening factor is that it's consistent and steadily engaged with our experience. It doesn't waver between the apathy and dullness of sloth and torpor on one hand or the agitated overexertion of restlessness and worry on the other. So you might take a moment now just to notice how's the mental energy Just to see if you can get a sense of that. For some, it might be weak or scattered. For some, it might feel quite steady and stable. And this one is perhaps, the steadiness is a little harder to maintain when we're in the stimulation of our daily lives. But when we're on retreat, some of you have had the experience that at times the energy does settle into a very pleasant steadiness. It almost takes on a momentum of its own. And it feels like we can just kind of sit back and go along for the ride. And when we're in that phase, what happens is that it naturally shades over into the fourth awakening factor. See if anyone other than Liz knows the fourth one. (laughs) Not quite, we're going in that direction, but we're not there yet. I'm being very classical and giving them in the traditional order. So, yes, joy or rapture, the Pali word is piti. So joy or rapture comes when the energy has that momentum and it just naturally gives rise to this quality of mental joy And it very much is a mental quality. So it's not based on like sense pleasure of having a great meal on retreat or having a fabulous nap or whatever, walk. It's a skillful mental state. And so it can be sustained actually for very long periods of time. And according to Bhikkhu Analyo, one way we can sort of kickstart it is to tune in to the subtle joy of being mindful. The subtle joy of being in the present moment. Now for some of us that might be really subtle, but once we get a taste for it, we start to notice compared to being unmindful, mindfulness is actually pleasant. And the more we tune in, the more we can notice that pleasantness. The second aspect that Bhikkhunaliya points to is noticing the joy of a mind that's free of the hindrances. So even right now, as we're focusing more on the skillful states, if you tune into your minds right now, is there perhaps any flicker of, maybe not outright joy, but a little bit of lightness or delight? Just a flicker? And if not, that's fine. But... Maybe you can find that little bud and let it ripen. And as that joy does ripen and deepen, it settles, it matures in a way, into the next awakening factor. The fifth one is... You're not running out of steam. (laughs) Not yet? Not yet? Not yet? (laughs) you are doing so well you got uh, four out of seven that's pretty good it's tranquility and actually I should say that when we're going through this list the one that we overlook is usually the one that needs the most attention and I say that because I often miss tranquility myself you know it's quiet by definition it is calm it's quiet it's still, and so it is quite easy to overlook. And certainly in daily life, with all of our hyper-stimulation, it's not, for most people, as easy to access. But in the specialized setting of a retreat, once we have a taste of it, we really understand how powerfully it supports insight, because the mind is completely quiet, Unmoving. And one analogy that's sometimes used for this is uh, like a still forest pool. Some of you know the writings of Ajahn Chah. He talks about this still forest pool. So you can imagine the surface of the water is completely unruffled. And because of that, we can see all the way to the bottom. And we can see the fish and the other water creatures that are living there with total clarity. Now, I'm guessing... You're probably not experiencing that level of tranquility right now. But just check and see how much tranquility, calm might there be. Just to notice. Because that stillness, that tranquility, that calm develops and steadies and provides the basis for the next one to arise, the sixth one, which is, you had it before? Samadhi, Samadhi, yeah. Usually translated into English as concentration, but I try to avoid that term because in English, concentration sounds like force, fixation, over-efforting, all of which actually get in the way of genuine samadhi. Actual samadhi arises when the mind lets go, when it releases, when it relaxes, even subtle qualities of distraction. And then it can gather into what's known as absorption or unification of mind. And of all of these awakening factors, samadhi is probably the one that really does require the relinquishment and the simplicity of being on retreat to fully develop but even so you might just check right now is there some degree of gatheredness of collectedness just to notice and if not if you can't find even an iota even a skerrick that's okay because you're still practicing the instructions so in the Satipatthana Sutta, the instructions for these awakening factors are to know, firstly, is the awakening factor present or not? Is it present or absent? And so if we're noticing that it's absent, that's still really useful information. And then, so if we check and we find there's no samadhi, then we can adjust our practice to help support it. And although it's not specifically, explicitly part of the instructions here, the more we can notice the presence or the absence of these awakening factors without falling into judgment, then we're also cultivating the final awakening factor, which is... equanimity, Equanimity, yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. (laughs) (laughs) So the other trick with Buddhist questions is if... Mindfulness is almost always the first one. Equanimity is pretty much always the last one. So you can, you're on safe ground if you wait to the end and then say equanimity. (laughs) So equanimity is an old fashioned English word. Uh, Sometimes it's translated also as equipoise. And it's a state of balance. It's the mind that's completely at ease, at peace. It's free from any kind of wanting any kind of not wanting, which for most of us in the push and pull of everyday life might sound like a pretty distant possibility. But again, the conditions of being on retreat can support us to have direct access to this profound peace. And when all seven of these awakening factors are in balance, that's when deep insight arises. So again, right at this moment, you might not be experiencing that profound depth of equanimity. But just see, if you check in now, is there some ease? Some acceptance? Some balance? Just to notice. Again, it might be a little bud. But the more we learn to recognize these kind of signature flavors of how the awakening factors feel in the heart and mind, that very recognition helps them to strengthen and grow. Okay, so that was a very quick, super quick tour. And ideally, I'd love to have more sessions to go into them in more depth. But I wanted to at least give you an overview of what the mind is capable of. Because most of us are much more familiar with the hindrances. And because of our mind's negativity bias, we tend to focus more on the hindrances and not even notice when the awakening factors might be present. We, Most of us have a tendency to focus on what's wrong with us, where we don't measure up how we're failing, how practice isn't going well. And we often bring this to our meditation practice. And then it's very easy for our whole meditation practice to become a kind of an unconscious self-improvement project that's actually rooted in self-aversion. And I've noticed in myself and many of the students I teach, many people are much more comfortable, strange as it is, endlessly struggling with the hindrances and they're quite uncomfortable at acknowledging their strengths and what's going well, their wholeness. So I encourage you to keep these awakening factors in mind, even in your daily life practice, because I'm confident that they're actually present a lot more often than you might think. So I'll close with just a few words from the English monk Ajahn Sichito because he expresses this uh, more eloquently than I can. He says, in the teaching of the Buddha, the emphasis is on the cultivation of good states. There's nothing so surprising about that, but we may still miss a vital point. We can conceive that the practice is about getting rid of bad states, when actually the cultivation of good states is more fundamental. One should refrain from picking up or acting on unwholesome states of mind, fully cultivate the good and thus and thus purify the mind by dispelling residual bad habits. It's important to acknowledge that the Buddha's teaching is based on the human capacity to refrain from what's harmful and to cultivate the good. So it's based on original purity rather than original sinfulness. It's only through reference to that fundamental goodness, which we get drawn away from through ignorance, that one can can cultivate the good and clean out the bad. We can't clear out negative psychological or emotional habits through feeling negative about ourselves, that doesn't provide the will or the capacity to dispel bad mental habits. A more positive influence is required. And for that, there has to be the presence of goodness to give confidence and positive energy in in relating to what's negative. So the awakening factors have a, a role to play here in giving us that confidence. So... May our releasing of the hindrances and our strengthening of the awakening factors lead us to that deep freedom of heart and mind. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.